So where are we in the Gospel of John? Usually, um, John has a lot of time markers in his Gospel. And so usually when he says, after this, it means that some period of time has passed since where we ended last. And we know because of the reference to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles that about six months has passed since where we ended last week with, uh, at the end of uh, chapter 6. If you remember, during the, whole, uh, during the feeding of the 5,000 and the whole uh, Bread of Life discourse that, that we preached through over several different uh, sermons, that was all happening during the time of the Passover, right? And the Passover typically happens in the spring. It's around the same time as Easter, usually end of March, early April. Now we're at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a, a celebration that happens at the, in October, typically. It's the equivalent of the Jewish uh, Thanksgiving, basically. And it has a dual purpose. It, it happens at the end of summer, early October, at the time of the harvest. So it's intended to be a celebration of God's provision through the harvest. But it's also intended to be a reminder of God's provision for the nation of Israel while they were wandering in the, in the wilderness. That's why it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, because as they wandered through the wilderness, they lived in tents. So six months has passed. And Jesus, the scripture tells us, has been primarily staying in the region of Galilee, in the north of Israel. Why? Because of the growing hostility that exists with the religious leaders in Jerusalem and in Judea. Now, Jesus' brothers enter the picture. And this is a, really a unique appearance of Jesus' brothers. It's really the only time anywhere in the Gospels that we hear any interaction or a kind of substantive dialogue with Jesus' brothers. They show up very briefly in other places. They've shown up in, uh, in the Gospel of John at the end of the, uh, the wedding at Cana. It, there's a very passing reference to Jesus' brothers that, he, that Jesus, along with his mother and his brothers, went to Capernaum and stayed there for a while. It's the only thing we hear about Jesus' brothers. We know from Matthew 15, or sorry, Matthew 13, 55, that Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon, as well as several sisters. We don't know exactly how many. This exchange with Jesus' brothers is confusing. There are a number of confusing elements about this passage. Maybe you picked them up as we read through. The first thing that's confusing is that, so Jesus' brothers are urging him to go to Jerusalem to the feast. And Jesus answers them pretty clearly. No, my time has not yet come. I'm not going to this feast. You guys go. Then what happens? Jesus goes to the feast. It's confusing. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but it's one perplexing element of this whole interaction. The second perplexing element, which we will focus more on this morning, is the dialogue with Jesus' brothers and specifically John's commentary on it. Jesus' brothers evidently want Jesus to go to Jerusalem to increase the effectiveness of his ministry. He wants, they, they want him to go and do evidently the same kind of miracles and works that he's been doing in Galilee. 
We haven't seen everything that Jesus has done over the last six months, but we know from the other Gospels that when Jesus is traveling around, he's healing people, he's teaching, he's doing these miraculous works, and it's drawing crowds, it's gaining attention. But Galilee is kind of the backwaters of of, of the nation of Israel. Jerusalem is where the real action is. And so his brothers want him to go so that his ministry can gain momentum, that more people can hear about him. His brothers seem to believe a lot of things, they seem to believe a lot of things about Jesus. They believe that he's powerful. They believe that he's important. They may even believe that he's the Messiah, at least in some sense of the word. They believe a lot of things about Jesus, but the text tells us that they don't believe in Jesus, at least not in the way that truly matters. I came across uh, an article this week it just came across my, my news feed. Sometimes, you know, you go looking for sermon illustrations, and sometimes they come to you. And so I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. It had, a, it had a, a provocative title, as most news stories do. It said, Atheists are sometimes more religious than Christians. All right, I'll bite. It was based on, this was an article, a study that was based on work done by the Pew Research Center where they, uh, they, you know, the Pew Research Center does a lot of polls of people. And so they had done some polling of people in the United States and in Western Europe about their religious views, asking questions like, um, do you believe in God with absolute certainty? Or how often do you pray? How often do you attend church services? And they had people self-identify kind of their own personal religious views. Were they Christian, Muslim, uh, atheist, agnostic, no religious affiliation at all? The people that they put, the people that responded as atheist, agnostic, or no religious affiliation, they called nuns. No, not nun, you know, N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S. And so they, they, did some, they did some comparisons about the people who responded in those categories in the U.S. and people who responded in Western Europe. And unsurprisingly, they found that people in the U.S. On, in, on, in general are more religious by their definition than people in Europe. But what was surprising, they said, was a particular finding. I'll read you what they said. The third finding reported in the study is by far the most striking. As it turns out, American nuns, remember those who are self-report as atheist, agnostic, or no religious affiliation, are as religious or even more religious as Christians in several European countries, including France, Germany, and the UK. That was a surprise, said Nia Segal, the lead researcher on the study. That's a comparison that's fascinating to me. She highlighted the fact that whereas only 23% of European Christians say they believe in God with absolute certainty, 27% of American nuns say this. Now, I know a lot of people, I, I know and work with a lot of people in France and in, in Europe, and that's not really surprising to me at all, honestly. 
But it raises a question. What does it mean to really believe in God? Or maybe more specifically, what does it mean to really believe in Jesus? If you go home this afternoon and the Pew Research Center calls you and asks, do you believe in Jesus with absolute certainty, does that make you a believer by the Bible's terms? If you go to church every Sunday, what if you pray every day? What we see in this text is three responses to Jesus, all of which the Bible defines as unbelief. And we're going to look at these three responses. I've categorized these responses this way. Number one, rejection. Number two, deflection. Number three, distortion. And as we dig into each of these responses, I hope we'll see two things. Number one, that all belief at its core has the same root issue. The fruit may look different, but the root is always the same. And as we understand what belief is more clearly, I hope we'll, what unbelief is, I hope we'll also see and understand what true belief is as well. Let's look first at rejection. We see this right up front in verse 1. The Jews, Jesus is staying in Galilee and not going to Jerusalem and Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Generally speaking, when someone is trying to kill you, it means they don't like you very much. That's just free wisdom. But the question we have to ask is why? Why are these religious leaders? And when and John refers to the Jews, he's talking not about the Jewish people generally. He's talking about the Jewish religious leaders, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why are these religious leaders so hostile to Jesus? And why are some people today hostile to Jesus as well? Speaking of France, I remember the first time I went to France in college I had literally just stepped off of the airplane into the Paris Charles de Gaulle airport, and I was wearing a t-shirt, I think, that said something about Jesus. I think it said, No Jesus, K-N-O-W, and it had like a, a, a scripture verse on the back. And I don't think I had been off the plane five minutes. I was walking through the Charles de Gaulle airport, which is an incredibly busy airport. I mean, just packed with people from all over the world. It's the most diverse place I've ever seen in my life. And I was walking through this crammed, crowded airport, and an older man, probably in his 60s, came, just walked straight up to me and said, just so you know, in a French accent, we don't appreciate that here. Okay. Welcome to Paris. At this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus hasn't really done anything exceptionally provocative, especially in Jerusalem. Now, he cleansed the temple. Okay, that's stirred up some controversy. He healed on the Sabbath. That definitely got some people twisted up. And he subtly suggested, although not nearly as, as explicitly as he's about to, that he's equal with God by calling God his father. But the root issue here that the Jewish leaders are offended and hostile about is not blasphemy. The issue is authority. And we'll see that unfold in the next parts of the 
gospel. The religious leaders have built a system of authority that puts themselves at the top. They are God's representatives to the people. They are the ones in charge, and they're not interested in sharing power or control. And with each interaction that Jesus has with them, he is progressively dismantling their authority and unraveling their control. People often respond violently when they feel like they're losing control. And we see it playing out even at the end of this passage. The people, the crowds, are they're interested in Jesus. We'll, we'll look at this in a minute. They're interested in Jesus, but they're afraid of the Jews. There is a conflict of allegiance. At its root, unbelief is never ultimately a problem of information. It is a problem of allegiance. Now, I'm not saying that understanding who Jesus is and what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection is not important for what it means to come to true belief. But information alone is never the ultimate obstacle, and it's never the ultimate solution. And to be honest, I'm not surprised that the most educated people in the nation of Israel, even those who knew their Bible best, are the most hostile to Jesus. The religious leaders, I think, actually understand more clearly than many of his disciples what Jesus is actually teaching. They understand that he is elevating himself to a place of ultimate authority, and he's not going to share the control. His claims don't allow for a neutral response. And it's precisely because they understand what Jesus is teaching that they are so violently hostile against him. Most of the time, people who are openly hostile towards Christ are either people who have studied religion, Christianity, or even the Bible in academic context. They know it very well. Or people who have grown up in Christian contexts and then walked away. Some of you maybe recently saw a New York Times article about Abraham Piper, son of John Piper. He's hostile towards Christ. It's heartbreaking. But it's not a hostility that's based in ignorance of who Jesus is. It's a hostility that's based in a rejection of what Jesus claims. At its root, unbelief is never ultimately a problem of information. It is a problem of allegiance. Let's look next at deflection. We see this at the end. We're going to jump down to verses 12 and 13. The people... Before Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, the people are muttering about him. Some are saying that he's a good man. Some are saying that he's leading the people astray. But no one is really going to take a a stand about who Jesus is. And they're certainly not going to put themselves in any place of conflict with the religious leaders. What we see in this response is what we might call the agnostic response. It's a response that acknowledges Jesus intellectually, but keeps him at arm's length personally. It's a response that says, yeah, I mean, I, I think Jesus is all right. Like, I guess, I guess he was a good teacher, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, that Jesus stuff isn't for me. Maybe, maybe when I'm older, I'll, I'll think about that. 
I'm calling this response deflection because it's intended to avoid having to deal with the real claims of who Jesus says he is. What's important to notice here is that these are people who haven't interacted a lot or maybe at all with Jesus directly. So remember, Jesus has been up in Galilee. These people are in Jerusalem. Maybe some of them came from there, but Jesus hasn't spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. So these are people who are hearing about Jesus from a distance, but they haven't interacted with him face to face. That's about to change. They're about to meet Jesus face to face. They're about to encounter the real Jesus. And when that happens, they won't remain agnostic. You can jump ahead in your Bible to verse 40. After Jesus has done some teaching in Jerusalem in the temple, and he said some provocative things, the, the title over that section in my Bible is this, Division Among the People. Some say, start to say, as a response to meeting Jesus face to face, he's the Christ. Some want to arrest him. They're not neutral anymore. John Stott says, if you read your Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus ever had a moderate reaction to him. There are only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, they were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him and they tried to give their whole lives to him. We saw that in the last section we just finished, right? The people come to Jesus, but once they meet the real Jesus, what happens? A whole bunch of them run away. Some say, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no neutral responses. At its root, the response of deflection is the same as the response of rejection. It's just a little more polite on the surface. It says, I'm good, Jesus. I don't really need or want anyone poking around in my life. I'm perfectly fine managing things on my own. Let's look last at the response of distortion. Jump back to verse 3. This is the exchange with Jesus' brothers. I said at the beginning that this is a confusing section. Jesus' brothers are urging him to go to Jerusalem, as we said, to increase the reach of his influence. We see that in verse 4. No one works, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly, publicly. You're, Jesus, you're obviously trying to do something. You're obviously trying to create some attention here. Why stay here in Galilee? If you really want to, people to know about your ministry, go to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly what is the motivation Jesus' brothers have for pushing him in this way. It could be that they, they have a similar motivation as the crowd at the feeding of the 5,000. They think that Jesus is a military or political leader who's going to overthrow the Roman Empire and restore their political freedom and power. It could be that they just liked being in close proximity to someone who had power and influence. And they thought that Jesus was going to be their ticket to a better life. Could have been a combination of both. Whatever their ultimate motive, what we know is that they have a distorted understanding of who Jesus is. 
and what he has come to do. Or to say it slightly differently, they have distorted Jesus to serve their own interests and agendas. And the scripture tells us this is unbelief. See, here's the sobering reality of this text. It is possible to be in close proximity to Jesus, to be very familiar with Jesus, and even to believe a lot of things about Jesus, but not really believe in Jesus, or at least not to believe in the real Jesus. R.C. Sproul says, If we could have asked Jesus' brothers, do you believe in your brother? They would have said, of course we believe in him. Why else would we want him to go to Jerusalem and make himself known? We want the people to know about him. We want to see his ministry grow and expand. Just like John the Baptist, we want him to increase. Nevertheless, the word of God says Jesus' brothers were unbelievers. Now maybe you might be tempted to think, Well, that seems kind of harsh. Maybe they didn't get it completely right, but it seems like an honest mistake, like a misunderstanding. What I want us to see is that the, the response of unbelief at its root is always a rejection of the authority of Jesus. And it is an intentional, in this case, distortion of Jesus to make him conform to our preferences, desires, and agenda. And there are countless distorted Jesuses who are happy to fit that bill. Culturally relevant Jesus. Social justice Jesus. Political action Jesus. Health and wealth Jesus. American dream Jesus. But the real Jesus will never conform to our preferences and agendas. This is why Jesus says in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Every human heart naturally exists in a state of active rebellion against the authority of Christ. Some people will disagree with this. But the fact is, when the real Jesus comes to us and says, come, follow me, every single one of us, apart from God's grace, will respond in one or more of the ways that we've seen in this passage. No way, Jesus, get away. Or, that's an interesting idea, I'll, I'll think about it. Maybe I'll, I'll think about it later. Maybe, maybe when I'm, I'm older. I'm, I'm good, Jesus. Or, okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll come along if it means I get this eternal life part. That, that seems pretty good. I'll even clean up my act a little bit, at least as long as you make my life comfortable, of course. But let's just be clear that there are some areas that are off limits. My money, obviously that's mine, I've earned that. My sexuality, you just don't have any business going there. My relationships, how I spend my time. There's probably some other areas I'll let you know when I think of them. 
At its root, unbelief is a rejection of the authority of Christ and his offer of salvation on his terms alone. It is the natural response of every human heart that says, not your will, but mine be done. Which brings us back to our initial question. What does it mean to truly believe in Jesus? Do you remember how the Gospel of John starts? Chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To believe in Jesus is to receive him fully on his terms alone, for his sake alone. Say that again. To believe in Jesus is to receive him fully on his terms alone, for his sake alone. I want to unpack that, each part of that. To receive him fully, what does it mean? It is to believe and accept that he really is able to save you. It's to receive him for yourself, his life, death, and resurrection, that Jesus, I believe you are able to save me. On his terms alone, does that mean? Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, Sorry, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross defines the terms of God's salvation. The cross says that we have sinned against God and that our sin deserves death. The cross says that our debt before God was so great that only God himself could take the punishment that we deserve. The cross says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to take our punishment and give us eternal life. And the cross says that if anyone would come after Jesus, the only way to follow him is to die to ourself and come after him. That's offensive to a lot of people. How can you say that my sin deserves death? How can you say that God punished his own son? If we won't accept Christ on his terms, we don't get Christ. Finally, for his sake alone. And this is the one maybe that isn't quite as clear or obvious. In Christ, God has made an offer of salvation to each and every one of us. By receiving Christ, we are joined with him in his death and his resurrection from the dead, Romans 6.5. Not only are our sins forgiven, but we receive Christ's perfect record of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Our broken relationship with God is reconciled and restored, Romans 5, 10. Even more than that, we're adopted as sons and daughters of God and are given God's spirit to live inside of us, Galatians 4, 5, and 6. At the end of all days, God will raise us up as he did Christ, 
1 Corinthians 6.14, and we will receive an inheritance of eternal joy with Christ forever. 1 Peter 1.4. But this is the most important part. All of these incredible benefits and countless others come to us in Christ, not through Christ. What do I mean? Maybe the difference, the distinction isn't obvious at first, so let me explain with an illustration. If I buy a ticket to the Super Bowl, the ticket is important, right? That's my pass to get to the Super Bowl, but it's only important because of what it gets me. Once I get to the Super Bowl, and once the Super Bowl's over, I don't really care so much about the ticket. Maybe I'll hang on to it as a souvenir. Maybe I'll put it in a scrapbook and pull it out and look at it every once in a while just to remember how great the Super Bowl was. But the ticket isn't the main event. Too often, we think of Jesus like the ticket. He is the means by which we get all of these great benefits. But what we're really interested in is the benefits. And that's not what the Bible describes as true belief. I just want to read quickly Ephesians 1. I'm going to go quick, but the emphasis will be clear, I think. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purposes with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Jesus Christ is the main event. When we get him, we get everything. And there is not one single benefit of the gospel that we will enjoy now or for all eternity that we will enjoy apart from Jesus or to a greater degree than Jesus Christ himself. When we get Jesus, we get everything. But to receive him, we have to let go of our allegiance to self-rule. 
and say to Christ with open arms, not my will, but yours be done. Before we finish, I just want to come back to Jesus' brothers. Their story doesn't end here, you know. Maybe some of the names that I read at the beginning were familiar to you. James, Jude. There's a reason they're familiar, because those brothers went on to write books in the New Testament. So they got it. And I just want to read two sections from the book of Jude. Jude, the introduction, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Why did he say that? Is it because Jesus was ashamed to call him his brother? No, we know that's not the case. He had come to understand that It was his joy to submit to the lordship of Jesus. And he wasn't willing in humility to compare himself with Jesus. He's happy to compare himself with James, but he's the servant, the bondservant, the slave of Jesus Christ. And then the end. Probably the greatest doxology in all of the New Testament. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. I think he got it. There's a lot of ways we could apply this passage If you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never believed in him in the way that we've discussed this morning, and there's something in you that wants to know more, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Don't, please don't be embarrassed. It may mean that God is drawing you, that he's opening your eyes to come to him. For all of us who would say, I've trusted in Jesus... The fact is that unbelief can function in our lives, even if we've trusted, even if we have truly believed in Christ, unbelief can still be functional in our lives. It's why the writer of Hebrews says, Jason referenced this last week, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The fact is, though, The response, the solution, the answer, the application for all of us, wherever we are, is the same. Run to Jesus. There is no hope. There is no assurance. There is no joy. There is nothing that we can have or experience in this life or any for all eternity that doesn't come in him and through relationship with him. So run to Jesus. And if you have believed, if you would say at the core of my being, I know it's not perfect, but I I believe in Christ. It's because God has drawn you. It's because he's opened your eyes. It's because he's given you faith to fully receive Christ on his terms for his sake alone. So praise him. He's worthy. Let's pray.
Jesus, we see you so dimly right now. We understand, we, we get glimpses through your word, and your spirit opens our eyes to see you. And, and, uh, and, and when we see you, Lord, our hearts burst with joy. But we're so weak. We're so easily distracted. We're so easily drawn into unbelief to reject you in certain areas of our life, to push you away and sidestep your claims, to, to, to try and get all of the benefits of relationship with you without coming to you, without living in and abiding in you alone. Help us, Lord. I pray that your spirit would help each and every one of us, wherever we are, Lord. For those who haven't trusted in you, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, open their eyes, give them faith to respond to the true Jesus. For all of us, Lord, who are seeking to honor you with our lives, help us to walk in an abiding relationship with Christ, Lord, seeking to increasingly submit our lives to others and helping others to do the same. For your glory, you receive all glory, all honor, all dominion, all power, now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.